0: Well, it's that time of the year again. Yes, Christmas is almost upon us. And for many of us, that means one thing. Being busy, busy, busy. Busy, putting up the tree, hanging the lights, writing the cards, sending the cards, buying the presents, wrapping the presents, stuffing the stockings, planning the meals, preparing the meals, watching the Grinch, singing the carols, going to parties. Quite frankly, I don't know how Mary and Joseph did it all. Amazing. At Christmas, of course, we celebrate the first coming of Jesus into the world to save us from our sin. And and there's usually a lot we do to prepare for it. But what about Jesus' second coming? As Christians, how should we be preparing for it? Well, that is exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us in the third and final chapter of 2 Thessalonians. Now, if you don't already have a Bible open in front of you at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, let me encourage you, grab a Bible now, turn with me there. And as you're looking that up, let me remind you that the Apostle Paul is writing to the young church he had planted in Thessalonica, probably just a few months earlier. He's written to encourage them with the assurance that Jesus is coming back and that when he does, all who have rejected the gospel including those persecuting these Christians, will be punished. Whilst those who believe, like the people of this church, well, they will share in the glory of Jesus' victory. At the moment, Satan, though restrained, opposes God and his people. But in the end, he'll be destroyed and all wickedness with him. So in the first two chapters, Paul's focus has very much been on the day of Christ's return and the hope that it brings. But now, in this final chapter, he turns his attention to how these Christians ought to be living in the meantime, as they wait for Jesus to come back. The chapter starts with Paul asking the Thessalonians to to pray for him, in particular, that through his ministry, the, the gospel will spread rapidly. And despite opposition... It will continue to go out with more and more people hearing the good news, believing and being saved. This is Paul's great passion. But Paul is equally concerned about what's happening back in the Thessalonian church. You'll remember that after Paul planted the church, he was forced to leave the city after just three short weeks. But Paul takes great comfort in the knowledge that even though he's not there, God is. And he's confident that God is faithfully helping them to keep growing in their faith and carrying out the instructions he gave them when he was with them. Here, read with me from chapter 2, uh, chapter 3, beg your pardon, chapter 3, verse 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured, just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. And so obviously, Paul, he, he, he isn't like one of those construction companies. And uh, we won't mention any names. You know, the, the sort that, that build a, a building and then as soon as payment's made, well, they move on and they, they don't want anything more to do with you. Couldn't care less about any defects that come to light later on. Now, even though Paul's no longer with these Thessalonians, well, his heart certainly is. He cares deeply about how they're they're living in this time before Jesus comes back. And in particular, he wants them obeying his commands. Now, to our ears, that can sound a bit strange, can't it? I mean, uh, imagine if I stood here today and started making commands, Um, you know, I command you to drop and give me 10. Uh, I command you to, to bring me a block of chocolate. I reckon there'd be probably a few raised eyebrows, to say the least, and, and rightly so. So what gives Paul the right to do it here then? Well, it's because he is a very, he's in a very unique category. He's an apostle. In other words, he, he's one of the very few people who, in, in the time just after Jesus returned to heaven, was personally commissioned by Jesus to be his spokesperson, his mouthpiece to the world. And that, that means when, when Paul is in teaching mode, he speaks with all the authority of Jesus Christ himself. In other words, Paul's commands are Christ's commands. And so obviously, his commands really should be obeyed. And whilst most in this Thessalonian church are on board with this, it seems that a few are not. So who are these people? Well, they're obviously converted Christians, because Paul calls them believers. But they're not obedient Christians. At least not in one particular area of their life. They're what Paul calls idle and disruptive. Rather than getting a job, they prefer just sponging off people, people around them, people in the church. They're bludgers, relying on the generosity of others in the church rather than supporting themselves. And it seems this issue was one Paul saw with his own two eyes when he was in Thessalonica and one that he had addressed at that time through instructions and also through his own example too. Um, As as an apostle, Paul would have been perfectly within his rights to ask the members of this church to to pay his way. If he wanted, he could have even quoted the words of Jesus who said of gospel workers, uh, the labourer deserves his wages. It was Paul's right to be paid. But in order to give these Thessalonians an example to follow, he, he gave up that right. He got a job. And I'm sure it would have been a great sacrifice for Paul to do that. I mean, working hour after hour, probably as a, a tent maker, to pay for his food and lodging, and then doing all his mission work on top of that, too. Would have been exhausting, and hopefully at this Tuesday night's congregational meeting, when uh, you decide whether you're going to pay the ministry team next year, you, you won't expect us to do the same thing, please. But in this particular situation, Paul felt it was necessary to, to drive home the rule: if you aren't prepared to work, you shouldn't expect to eat. Here, read with me from verse 6. Verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how your order follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. Some of the Thessalonians have, have ignored Paul's instructions on work. Rather than being busy, Paul says they're, they're busybodies. It's a great phrase, isn't it? They're not busy, they're busybodies. Not only are they turning up to people's places expecting a feed, but they're also sticking their nose in where it doesn't belong. They're busybodies. Obviously with too much time in their, on their hands. I mean, you can just imagine it, can't you? They, t- they turn up and, and, and start offering all sorts of unwanted advice. You know, couldn't help but uh, notice how you parent your children. And then, uh, Anyway, I just, just thought maybe I could, could give you a few tips. <laughs> or, or maybe they're the nosy Parker kind of busybodies. Ooh, this is a pricey dinner setter. How much do you earn exactly? Or or, or perhaps they're the the gossipy kind of busybodies. Hey, did you see the dress Theodora wore to church on Sunday? Oh, very loud, wasn't it? Uh, Can't blame her, though. Probably, Probably trying to drown out that endless sermon. You get the point? These people are busy bodies, minding everybody's business but their own and making general nuisances of themselves. And so Paul now addresses them directly with all his authority. As an apostle, he commands them to stop their loafing and get a job. It's not a suggestion. It's not a request. He orders them to find work. Start supporting themselves. And he encourages everyone else to to not tire of doing what's right and good. I mean, I I imagine the behaviour of these sponging busybodies would have been rather draining. They could have easily left those around them feeling cynical about helping people. But, But Paul says, no, don't ever tire of doing what's right and good in God's eyes. And then Paul tells the church, how they're to deal with anyone who continues to disobey his commands. He tells them to withdraw from them, to, to pull away, but not completely, not, 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 like, not like you would with a, with an enemy. No, they're, they're still to, to, to treat them like fellow believers, but they're to modify the relationship such that it's clear that the idle, busybody's stubborn disobedience is not appropriate, in hopes that they'll feel ashamed of their behaviour and be motivated to change. Here, read with me from verse 11. Verse 11. We hear that some of you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Do not regard them as an an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. And with that, Paul comes to the final part of his letter. And at this point, it seems that he, he takes the, the quill from his scribe's hand and he, he writes these final words himself, no doubt to confirm the authenticity of the letter, um, which is important considering that, as we saw last week, fraudulent letters were circulating in Paul's name. So this final part of the letter, it, 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 with his own handwriting, Paul, he, he offers the Thessalonians a, a blessing a blessing that they would experience all the peace and grace that Jesus has to offer. And it's such an encouraging way to finish. Because, I mean, this letter has dealt with some pretty heavy matters facing the Thessalonians. In chapter 1, they're they're dealing with persecution. In chapter 2, they're dealing with troubling rumours about Jesus' return. Now, here in chapter 3, they're... They're dealing with idle and disruptive church members. I mean, it must have been so stressful. So what a comfort to know that they have the peace and grace of Jesus Christ in their lives. And the knowledge that he is right there with them in all of it. Through his Holy Spirit. Helping them stand firm and helping them obey his commands as they await his physical return. Here, read with me these final verses, these final verses from verse 16. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And with that, we reach the end of today's passage and the end of 2 Thessalonians. So, what have we seen today? Well, as the Thessalonians wait for Jesus to return, Paul wants them to obey all his commands, including his commands about work. Those who are loafing and sponging off others need to stop. They need to get a job and start supporting themselves, and if they refuse, well, then the rest of the church shouldn 't just turn a blind eye instead, they should withdraw from them, treating them as as, as fellow believers, yes, but modifying the relationship with the hope of bringing about repentance and so as we here today consider what uh, this passage has to say to us. And in particular, how how we should be living in this time before Jesus comes back. Well, let's spend some time now thinking about the the two big ideas that come out of this passage. uh, Work and obedience. First of all, work. Well, it's abundantly clear, isn't it, from this passage that the the normal expectation of the Christian life is is that we will be productive and and hard-working. The fact is, not just our parents want us to get a job. God does too, because it's a part of the normal Christian life. And so you see, waiting for Jesus to return shouldn't be like waiting around at a surprise party, you know, where everyone stops what they're doing and, and, and stays perfectly still until the, the birthday boy walks through the door. No, we're, we're to be active and, and diligent, providing uh, for ourselves and, and, and those in our care right up until the time Jesus returns. And I reckon I, I reckon often um, we have this tendency to, to think about our work life and and to think about our spiritual life as as two different things. But now it's very clear from this passage, isn't it, that our our work, assuming that it's nothing that God would disapprove of, our work is, is a part of faithful Christian living. And that means that those who are unwilling to work are out of line with what God wants. They're disobedient. Now hear me, when I say this, I, I am in no way talking about people who are unable to work for some reason, you know, that, whether that be on account of uh, illness or disability or, or age or a lack of jobs, whatever. Christians like that have no reason to feel guilty about not working and, 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 and they should be generously cared for by the rest of us when needed. And we should all have the humility to accept help at those times. But verse 10 is very clear, isn't it? It's those who are unwilling to work who are in the wrong here. And again, don't get me wrong. If you're a stay-at-home parent, working hard, looking after your children in your home, whilst your spouse works, I know you don't get paid for it, <laughs> but I hope you realise how incredibly important and honourable your work is. This passage is not talking about you either. Now, I think we probably all know the sort of person Paul has in mind here, don't we? Now, there was someone uh, someone I grew up with uh, in, in, in my church. We went to the same church uh, and... This, this fellow just never seemed to work, like for years. His nickname was Gunner, and it was well-earned because uh, he was always Gunner do this and Gunner do that, but, but there was always a reason why he wasn't working. But he was always Gunner. Uh, sometimes he couldn't get a job because uh, well, his shoulder was sore or his knee or, or his toenail But, of course, that never stopped him doing all the fun physical activities he he liked doing. He lived at at home until he got sick of his parents hassling about getting a job. Uh, Then he moved in with some other guys from church, promising to start paying rent as as, as soon as he got his big break, which was going to be real soon. Mind you, it didn't stop him finding money to pour into his hotted up car. And he developed a reputation for his uncanny ability of turning up on, a, on church people's doorstep right at dinnertime. Uncanny. And then he wouldn't go home. Oblivious to the fact that most people had to wake up early to go to work the next day. Do you know people like that? Are you like that? When it comes to work, are you a gunner? then, friend, what you have to do is it's really quite clear. Get a job. Settle down and earn the food you eat. Now, if you're, if you're at uni, if you're a uni student, of course, you're, you're, you're in an in-between stage of life, aren't you? And, and you're going to have to think hard about how these principles might apply to you in, in your situation. I imagine that many of you have just started your summer break. Well, you're going to have to ask yourself, is it really right for me to do nothing but watch Netflix and play video games for the next three months? Three years if you're an art student. I I realise we can't be prescriptive here. You'll all have... Different circumstances, and I realise that with all study financially, you may not even need to work. But I'd still encourage you to be thinking about how you can use your time productively, uh, looking to serve others in your home or, or here at church. Um, maybe you could do a summer beach mission, or uh, read the Bible one to one with a friend. Uh, how good would it be to have something of? of of eternal worth to show for this window of opportunity God's given you. Because as Christians, we're to be active and hardworking as we wait for Jesus to return. That's the first point. Which brings us to the second, obedience. Because this issue of some Christians in Thessalonica being lazy bludgers was really just the presenting issue of a, of a much bigger problem. That being their unwillingness to respect Paul's authority. And as we've seen today, when Paul gives an instruction, it isn't a suggestion or a, a recommendation, it is a command. And, and he could do that because, well, as we've seen, he, he's Christ's apostle. And in his infinite wisdom, God has ordained it so that the writings of Paul and and, and the other apostles have been compiled into the New Testament. And so whilst they are long gone, their teaching remains here for us in the pages of our Bibles. And that means scripture comes to us with the same authority Paul had when he taught the Thessalonians, the authority of Christ. That's why we call it God's word. And therefore, we need to receive it as such, not not just when we feel like it, not just when it's convenient or easy, but always humbly obeying all the instructions contained within. As we wait for Jesus to return, We need to be living in faithful obedience to his commands. And we should help each other to do that too. It's interesting, isn't it? In our society, we tend to cherish our privacy and and independence. Uh, How does that saying go? Uh, You do you. But when it comes to a brother or sister's persistent disobedience... You do you it is a profoundly unchristian principle. Now, as a loving Christian community, it should bother us when fellow believers are unwilling to obey Jesus, like the Thessalonian loafers. So, how should we deal with them? Well, what's Paul's instruction here? In verse 9, the NIV says to keep away from them in verse 14 it says to not associate with them in both instances the greek word holds the idea of of withdrawing from them so we're we're, we're to withdraw but at the same time paul's clear that we're to to treat them as as fellow believers as as brothers and sisters in christ so so we're to withdraw but we're to maintain love and we're to do it with the purpose of restoring the person. So you've got, to have, you've got to get both parts right. Sadly, I think some Christians misuse passages like this as an excuse to, to shun people that they're, well, they're just simply unhappy with. I once knew someone who, who behaved a bit like that. You'd walk past her and you'd say, hi, and she'd purse her lips and look the other way. And you'd be left wondering, what have I done now? But that's manipulative and controlling, not loving and restorative. I also have a friend who attended a church here in Sydney that used to use verses like this to turn everything into the Spanish Inquisition. And what were matters of Christian liberty quickly turned into reasons to shun. Listening to the wrong Radio station in your car, or, uh, putting on the wrong amount of makeup. Probably started with really good intentions, but I tell you what, in time it became graceless and and prideful, holier than than thou condemnation. And rather than strengthening the church, it very nearly destroyed it. That's certainly not what Paul has in mind here. But just because some people get it wrong doesn't mean we don't want to take this passage seriously, no, no, we want to obey. We just need to do so very carefully. So what will withdrawing whilst maintaining love look like, do you think? Well I dare say that say that it's going to look different in, in different situations. But there are a few principles that should always apply. Firstly, it should be done out of a genuine love and concern for the other person. Not nitpickiness or anger. Remember, Paul has praised this church for their love for one another. And that is what we ought to be aiming for too. Building a, such a, a strong foundation for all our relationships that when we do need to confront a brother or sister about their sin... There will be no doubt in that person's mind that we're doing it out of genuine love. Secondly, it needs to be done with humility, recognising that that none of us are perfect, understanding that we all have blind spots and, and will sometimes need to be on the receiving end of loving confrontation. The fact is, at times, we're all unwilling to obey. But praise God, praise God for Jesus, whose never-ending, unwavering, entirely willing obedience took him all the way to the cross to pay for your unwillingness and mine. And remembering that truth will keep us humble and grace-filled as we confront others about their sins. Thirdly, withdrawing will mean that the relationship has changed somehow in a way that's appropriate for that particular situation. The idea is not not, not continuing to be so friendly with them that that, that they think you approve of their lifestyle, but withdrawing withdrawing in a way that, that doesn't leave the other person wondering, why, what's happened? We want to be clear that it's because of their continued unrepentant sin. And finally, we want to approach situations like this prayerfully, very, very prayerfully, recognising that God alone can change people's hearts and that we desperately need his wisdom when we address sin in someone else's life. So how would this kind of withdrawing have looked in the Thessalonian church, do you think? I don't know for sure, but let me take a stab at it. Perhaps it's it's dinner time. The souvlaki is just about to come out of the oven and, and the doorbell rings. Sure enough, it's Leo the loafer standing on the doorstep again. But maybe this time, instead of just inviting him in as though there's no problem at all. Maybe this time, out of love, you ask, So Leo, how's the job hunting going? Not so good, hey? Oh, that's a shame. Because Jesus really wants you to settle down and get that job. And I love you, Brother hey, I know, I heard the feta factory down the road is hiring. Shall we go check it out? Maybe you've got a better way of going about it. But obviously showing tough love like this is going to take guts, isn't it? And it's going to take a whole lot of wisdom too. But with God's help, who knows? You might just enable that person to see their sin for what it is and motivate them to turn from it. Yes, friends, Christmas is just around the corner. And while you're busy preparing to celebrate the first coming of Christ, don't forget to prepare for his second, will you? As we wait for our Lord's return, let's be people Who take our obedience to Jesus seriously, whether that be his commands on work or anything else in Scripture. And let's help each other to faithfully follow Christ to the very end. Let's pray. Well, dear God, thank you for the gift of work. And please help us to be wholehearted and diligent so that we can be generous and and not bludge off others. Thank you for all your commands in Scripture, which are for our good. Help us to submit humbly to them and repent wherever we've got it wrong. When a brother or sister sins, give us wisdom and grace in our interactions with them so they'll be motivated to repent and get back on the right path. When we sin, give us courageous friends who will love us enough to confront and give us humility to accept their loving rebuke. And finally, Father, thank you for Jesus who died to pay for all our disobedience and whose grace and peace will be with us every day as we await his glorious return. In his mighty name we pray. Amen.